James Juhas is an Olympic sailor from Ontario who, along with every other member of Canada's Olympic team, is to say the very least enormously disappointed that he's not going to Tokyo this summer, that in fact we have to wait a year. The Olympics uh, has been postponed. And, uh, well, let's talk to James and find out about uh, his take on all of this and what he's going to do for a year. James, good morning. Welcome to the program. Hey, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you with us. You are a laser-class sailor. Now, here uh, I'm looking out over English Bay, where a lot of sailors will be out enjoying the uh, the water later in the afternoon. And a laser-class is the smallest of the Olympic racing sailboats, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah, one person and one, one sail, just only 14 feet long. And, uh, and you chose that particular approach to sailing competitively james why you're a big man you're six three for crying out loud <laughs> yeah no it's uh it's a very it's a very physical sport you know being tall actually gives you uh gives you a little bit of an advantage in the in the heavy wind but um yeah it's i, I was i was just drawn to competitive sailing because uh because it's so exciting and do you uh, go to Queen's University? You're from Oakville, just on the uh, western side of Toronto, but you chose Queen's down, the, down in Kingston, mostly because it's where a lot of the National Olympic sailing team is headquartered, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sail Canada is headquartered right out of Kingston, uh, in where, where uh, Queen's is based out of. Mm-hmm. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of sailors go to Queen's because, um, because well, first of all, Kingston's a, a world-class sailing venue, so we uh, we get great training there uh, as many months of the year as possible, and uh, and we can have, be doing our studies at the same time. It's really a win-win. Exactly. Now, uh, you've been on the competitive circuit for how many years, James? Uh, I've been competitively sailing since I was 12 years old. Okay, you're a university I'm, uh, I'm 20 now. I was just going to say, you're a university yeah. student, so you've been at it for a while. And were you not recently in Australia in a competition, and was that to have been a pre-Olympic event? Yeah, so that, that, would, have been, um, that would have been part of the Olympic trials uh, had, it, had they gone forward. But um, yeah, that, that was the World Championships in, in Melbourne. And how recently? That's, that sounds like it's only a matter of uh, two or three weeks ago, right? Uh, that, that was in that was in February. Oh, okay, February. All right, so so you got yeah, in and then at, at the beginning of at the, sorry at the beginning of March we were supposed to be uh, we were supposed to be in Palma for the second half of the trials, but um, but it was canceled, obviously. But you were able at least to get in and out of Australia um, unscathed, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah. Luckily, luckily, we uh, we got back from Australia and then had a couple of weeks at, or had about a week at home, and then we were down in Florida actually for a training camp and to go to Spain when uh, when everything broke out. So we we kind of had to make a mad dash for the border. Oh, okay. So you you were back home from Australia. You were training in South Florida, and then uh, the the Canadian American border was closed. And so you had really very little choice, right? You got the call home, and especially as a member of the Olympic team, you pretty much well had to respond, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, you know, we had a, a call with the high performance director of Sail Canada, and he he said we're not going to force you to do anything, but we're uh, at that point. But we're strongly, strongly recommending that you make your way home as soon as possible. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck wherever you are. So, and, and of course, when you came home, uh, part of the process was the mandatory 14-day isolation, and you've been through all of that, and now we're on the other side of that as well, right? 
Yep, yeah, absolutely. Through the 14 days of isolation, and now we're just kind of trying to make the best of, uh, of being at home and, and uh, maintaining our fitness levels here while we can. Well, that's it, Red, because right now you're supposed to be in Spain at another Olympic trial uh, competition with the Olympics uh, originally slated to go uh, in July and August of this year. When did you learn of the official postponement of the Olympics, James? I learned in, um, I think when, I, I don't remember actually, to be honest, it's all, it's all kind of been a blur. Sure. Uh, but you would, would yeah, you be- I do remember being, being quite, quite shocked though. I'll bet. And did you hear, uh, through official channels through sale Canada or did you just pick it up on the news? Yeah, no, I, I heard through, uh, we, we had an email sent out to us by sale Canada because uh, before the Olympics were postponed, Sail Canada decided, or sorry, uh, Canadian Sport decided that they weren't going to be sending any athletes even if they did go ahead. Mm-hmm. So we heard we heard that Canada was making that decision the uh, the night before it was made. Ah, okay. So now, uh, two two sort of a two part question for you, James. Uh, a, how are you handling this personally? And what are your teammates doing in order to to reset pretty much the entire agenda to extend all of this training and all of this, you know, pairing things down to the Olympics by another full year? Yeah, well, um, you know, it, it is tricky. And personally, my my Olympic goal has always been I've always been focused on going or uh, getting ready for the twenty twenty four Olympics. That's oh, okay. Kind of what my what my goal has been always focused on. So. Uh, Personally, it hasn't hit me as hard as, as some of my my other teammates, for sure. But um, but at, at this point, we're really just trying to, uh, you know, you can't you need to control the controllables. You can't um, you can't be worrying about things that that you don't have any control over. Of course, just wasted wasted time and effort. So um, so we're really just putting our heads down now and trying to uh, trying to stay focused on being as prepared as possible for when the regulations are lifted again so we can we can really get back out on the water and uh, and and go out of that full force exactly you know, there's, there is there is kind of uh, as somber as it all is there is a positive way of looking at it which is we get an extra year to prepare and be even better than we already are so you always need to look on the bright side interesting stuff so now uh the olympic canadian olympic movement is saying and i'm hearing this from around the world too james there's not likely to be the even the postponed olympics next year in the absence of a vaccine that gives us about another roughly 12 to 15 months to get that organized how uh, you're just talking about looking on the bright side of life james how uh, optimistic are you that between now and a year from August, we'll have something like that uh, under control. Yeah, well, you know, from from my perspective, at least, you, uh, you know, I don't know anything about about how how the vaccine is coming along. I hope it's doing well, mm-hmm. but um, but I, I I need to say optimistic. That's kind of uh, that, that's that's the way the way it is. If I'm not optimistic, then uh, if I'm not optimistic that it's going to be happening, then um, then I can't. I can't be uh, giving giving my full effort because I'll always have in the back of my mind that uh, that it'll be for not not quite for as much. So uh, 
So uh, I'm staying optimistic, absolutely. Well, good for you. And your team and your your country is doing the other half of the worrying for you because they're not going to let you go anywhere near the Olympics unless they're you and all of your teammates are, are much safer than the conditions offered this summer. And that uh, should come as uh, some kind of relief to you as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I can, uh, I can let the, the professionals and the people in the decision-making positions do the worrying for me. Well, James, thanks very much for doing this with us today. We wish you a considerable success in staying, keeping the eye on the prize for another 15 months instead of another few weeks. It's going to be a bit of a challenge, but you sound pretty up to the task. So we wish you our very best, and we'll check back with you as things get a little closer. Thank you very much. Thank you for uh, for having me on. And uh, if anybody's interested in following along on my campaign, you can go to uh, james.uhas on Instagram or jamesuhas.com. Excellent, James. I'll pass along the spelling of your last name as well. Thanks for being with us this morning. James Uhas is a Canadian sailor laser class, and his last name is spelt J-U-H-A. S-Z. Google that and follow him. He's a very interesting young guy. Thanks, James. We're delighted to welcome Elton Ash to the program to talk about all of this. Mr. Ash is a good friend of this program, and he is also Executive Vice President for Western Canada for REMAX, the national realtor whose uh, signs we see literally from here to Halifax. Elton, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you on. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be with you. So let's talk first of all about the article that a lot of Vancouverites saw a few days ago in the Sun, uh, Douglas Todd uh, predicting uh, a rather significant downturn in uh, in housing. First of all, two things: activity and then prices uh, as twenty twenty goes forward. Are you on side with these predictions? What's your take on what he wrote? Well, um, I think perhaps this crystal ball might be a little cloudy, but, uh, you know, there's certainly going to be some adjustment to the real estate market as we move forward throughout the rest of this year into 2021. There's no question that the COVID-19 health crisis has certainly had an effect on real estate in the past uh, eight, nine weeks. Um, But, you know, the year started off, especially in Vancouver, at a tremendous pace. It was a great resurgence from what we saw occur last year. So I think uh, we'll certainly see some adjustment, but things may not be as dire as what he's predicting. Okay, well, let's talk about how things, and you're you're right to mention the fact that, my gosh, it's uh, everybody's uh, way of doing things. Everybody's way of living, for crying out loud, Elton, has been changed in the last four to eight weeks. Let's talk about your sector, real estate, and the, the obvious changes that we all know about are no more open houses. So if you're still shopping, and some people still are, Obviously, it's virtually, or is, are there any other activities going on? Well, you know, there, there's, there's a bit of a silver lining behind this uh, health crisis that we've gone through as far as real estate's concerned, and the overall consumer experience, the home shopper experience when, when you're looking at uh, selling or buying a home, and, and you really hit the nail on the head when you talk about virtual and and how we're going to see this industry the real estate industry change and how we're and what we're going to see happen as far as home sellers and buyers are concerned and that their overall experience is actually going to improve to be a somewhat more comfortable 
experience to what you've experienced, you know, when you're looking at buying a home. You, you know, the, the open house has been, a, for decades, has been a key component in marketing a home, whether sure. you're selling it or looking for one. You bet. And and now, of course, we've all been staying at home. We, we've, uh, and in British Columbia, it's been by personal choice. It wasn't mandated as it has been in other jurisdictions. And, and British Columbians have been terrific in in doing that. But, you know, there are people that sold their home prior to the crisis really hitting, mm-hmm. and they had to buy. I mean, uh, they've sold it, they've, conditions were removed, and so now they're looking to buy, a, buy another home. And, and they're in a situation that they're going to be moving. Legally, you can't frustrate the sale over a, a health crisis, as serious as it is, there are still legal obligations. So, so then, what's the root? that you have. Well, of course, virtual home tours, uh, many realtors. Now, the other thing interesting here, though, Sterling, is that the real estate industry has been a slow adopter of technology. And that the good news with this thing from realtors' perspective is it's forced them to really use technology and provide these kinds of experiences and abilities. And so what's been occurring is people have been, you know, touring homes virtually and then making a decision, okay, I want to look at that home. Mm -hmm. And then the realtor arranging for a safe environment, provided the seller was comfortable with it. And and certainly the thing that we've seen, and and let's get back to pricing for a minute. Mm -hmm. The thing that we've seen over the past six weeks is that pricing has had little effect simply because... Home sellers weren't comfortable with their home being shown at this time, and so they took their home, in effect, off the market. Right, yep. And there are fewer buyers, um, because if, if you were just out you know, looking casually, you weren't about to do that. Yeah, it was only the buyers who were in a position that they had to buy, transfer, uh, had sold, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so the pool overall on both sides of the equation was much less. And so, therefore, we've seen uh, little effect to real estate. And I, and I don't think that's what Mr. Todd is really saying at this point either, that there's been little effect to the, to the pricing overall. So, so we get back to the fact that people are narrowing down their search right now through virtual tours um, and photos that are on the websites and then going to see one home and making a decision. We've also had many examples now across Canada, where there have been sales and they've never stepped in the home physically. Interesting, okay. That uh, the tools that are there with the 3D virtual tours, you're, you're actually, in fact, I was in, a, in Montreal uh, a couple months ago wearing these virtual goggles. This company has developed te- uh, a technology platform where they go in, they take these 3D f- uh, videos of a home, you put on these virtual goggles and, and you feel like you're in the home. Like, it's amazing stuff that's coming. Sure. And again, interestingly, because your point that the real estate 
industry, the real estate sector industry-wide, has been kind of dragging its feet on the technology available to it. Yes, of course, there's MLS and online listings and that sort of thing. Everybody's pretty much there. But in terms of the virtual tour and the other really nicely dressed up uh, items that some realtors have been on since the get-go, most of the industry is, however reluctantly, now there too, Elton. So in that sense, everybody's pretty much on the same technical page and that is not a bad thing at all is it not at all and it's really going to uh, improve the home shopping experience completely so as we as the industry is now catching up to the rest of the world let's say mm-hmm. um, i think it's going to be far better so how does that really going to affect pricing and and then we have to look at where the economy is going to go and and how that's going to affect things generally and, okay. and that, that of course is is hard to to predict, but we've certainly seen the indications that British Columbia was in a strong economic situation previously, and that in all likelihood we're going to return to that. Um, but it's going to be difficult to say what that's going to look like. Absolutely. Elton Ash is with us. Mr. Ash is the Executive Vice President, Western Canada for REMAX Realty. And Elton, just before we talk about the rest of the country, you mentioned something a few moments ago that I'd like to return to and visit for a second. You talked about a family, for example, that sold a home prior to the lockdown. And now, of course, they've all the everything's closed. The subjects have been removed. The house has moved on to the new buyer. And these people who sold are now in no man's land looking to find a new property. And then you mentioned legal obligations uh, because, of course, uh, if you've, if you've uh, made a deposit on a, on a residence um, uh, while applying for a mortgage or whatever, uh, in this pandemic, uh, do the laws uh, allow for anything like a, a, an act of God or force majeure or whatever the legal term for it is to let some people off the hook? Yes, uh, every contract has a force majeure clause in it, which, as you just mentioned, act of God. And, and certainly uh, there has been business that has used that in um, postponing any particular contract that's in place. Okay. To use it in a full-out cancellation uh, would certainly uh, be, in some, in many instances, be uh, litigated against. Uh, in other words, because it's a short-term issue, we know that life will return to normal at yeah. some point in time. Um, but when it comes to real estate, it it is there's a domino effect. In other words, there there could be and, and often is a number of transactions that are hooked together in essence. That's because right. Of, uh, for, and the typical thing, a first-time young couple, first-time home buyer, or, or let's say are buying a condominium for their first home. And those people then are then buying uh, a smaller home. And then, and then those sellers are moving on to another home. And mm-hmm. then those sellers are empty nesters moving to a condo. Sure. You can have this cycle going on. Absolutely. And, and so to frustrate the first sale, as an example, can have huge you know, results down the road. And so the force majeure clause in real estate is, very, is used very little. In fact, I've actually never heard of it being used, and I've been in the business 40 years. Um, 
That doesn't mean it hasn't been. It's just very rare. Right. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, we'll talk about housing prices in a second. But very quickly, you are a, an executive vice president with a national company. How are we doing in, in Metro Vancouver and the island versus the rest of Canada in terms of just handling things for the moment? Well, I think British Columbia has been a leader, and the Vancouver marketplace, similar to all markets right across the country, and in fact, North America, has has been the same. As we've seen a slowdown occur, and we've seen pricing have little effect, and that's been consistent right across the country. Uh, as we as we look at the island, the interior of British Columbia, it's the same story. Right. Um, there is naturally concern about everything and initially we saw we all and i'm sure you felt same way sterling we all had this panic you know in mid-march what's going to happen here but then we've become accustomed to this kind of normal what we're existing in today and life moves on so as we go across the country it uh it's been a pretty similar experience okay now let's talk about uh, zooming right back into our own neighborhood let's talk about housing prices in vancouver and particularly uh i'm thinking condos because a lot of people who who own condos don't actually live in the melton they didn't buy them ever to live in them they bought them to maybe do airbnb or rent them out or turn them into some kind of money-making enterprise. Are those people most likely to get nicked by all of this? You know, it, it's, uh, it's really going to be hard to say what's going to happen. Um, right now, and condominiums have been actually the best segment of the market in Vancouver because they've been the most affordable right. pricing mm-hmm. segment in Vancouver. So it it's interesting that as we look at this, and certainly... Uh, how this plays out in the future, because we're also our borders, our borders are, are closed, yep. and that's going to affect foreign buyers in Vancouver and, and whether they're going to buy these 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 properties. But there's still this huge desire to move money, and and we're really talking mainland China. Um, there's this huge desire to move money out of China, and now with the ability for people to to look at homes virtually. As I mentioned earlier, sure. we've seen a number of instances of people buying virtually and never setting home into it till they get the keys. Right. You know, I, I believe that there will certainly still be strong interest in buying property in Vancouver. The, I mean, just the natural beauty and that the affordability issue is going to continue to be a problem. Now, there's no question that as we move along and as we come out of the crisis, and you know, I, the chief economist from CIBC uh, gave a presentation on Monday this week about his thoughts as to what's going to happen with the economy, and it's kind of a U-shape where we'll bounce back fairly quickly in the you know September October period, mm-hmm. but then things will start to go on more of a slope to recovery, kind of like a natural recession in the past. And so at that point, we're going to see some effect in prices. And this is where I think Mr. Todd is correct for Vancouver and, in fact, for the entire country. That as we get into 21, we will likely see some downward pressure on markets. But its effect is going to be regional or local in nature as to the severity. And again, this is where Vancouver and the entire province, really, the island and the interior, is the best situated market in the entire continent. 
Interesting stuff. Elton Ash, always a pleasure to have you on the program. A very calm, objective look at uh, the big picture uh, as how it's going to play out for a lot of us in it. We appreciate your time. It's always, always good to have you with us. It's always a pleasure, Sterling. In an effort to aid B.C.'s forest industry, our provincial government has made the call to defer stumpage fees for three months. The province saying, of course, stumpage fees are what a company pays to harvest, buy, or sell trees from crown land. So how will that affect the forest industry? Is it enough? Is there? Uh, what's the future of the industry looks like? And keeping in mind that the forest industry was once essentially the economic backbone of British Columbia. Here to talk about it in 2020 is the president and CEO of the BC Council of Forest Industries, better known to most of us as Kofi. Susan Yurkovich joins us. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, What was your reaction to the announcement by the province the other day with respect to the uh, deferral of stumpage fees? Well, uh, the deferral of stumpage is a short-term measure. Yes. Um, uh, you know, it, it will certainly help. Uh, I would say it's not the silver bullet uh, because most companies will be looking at whether they'll take advantage of that. There is interest to chat- attached to that at about uh, 6%, so mm-hmm. each company will be doing its analysis. Um, but, uh, you know, what we're looking for is the opportunity to survive, to sort of fight another day, and there are a lot of challenges facing our forest sector right now. Now, I, I mentioned, and, and, and uh, almost reverently, because I've been in British Columbia for quite a while, and when I first mm-hmm. moved here, it was all about forestry and fishing and then mining and then down and down the list so far. Where is forestry in 2020? Not the, the COVID pandemic notwithstanding, of course, Susan, but in terms of its, its importance to the economy. Well, you're really you're right, and what what you're referencing still stands today. It's a very significant employer across all regions of our province. Over a hundred thousand uh, people derive uh, their livelihood from the forest sector. So, uh, it is an iconic industry, but it uh, from of the past. But it's also a critically important industry now, and has and will be in in the future. We've got some challenges for sure, but when you think about the world and looking for uh, sustainably um, grown uh, products from that are carbon friendly. Mm-hmm. The forest sector is ideally positioned to be part of that new economy, just as it has been fundamental to uh, the foundational economy. How is our health? How is the forest industry's health? You referenced a couple of times already, Susan. Well, we've got some problems going on. What what specifically are the problems, and as a result of them, how healthy is our industry? Well, we've had challenges that you know predate COVID. Of I mean, the COVID is, uh, uh, challenge is just one more. We've had you know markets issues, trade issues. Uh, fundamentally, though, we have a cost competitiveness issue here in British Columbia, and and we're trying to address that. And we've got to have that addressed if we're going to be able to get back up running and help uh, bring more of our folks back to work. And in terms of cost competitiveness, dive into that for us a little bit, Susan, because uh, we immediately or certainly I, when I hear about the, a, a, a sort of a statement like that, I think of pressure from the United States uh, in terms of, of the way we harvest and, and uh, license our forest companies versus the way they do theirs. Is that what you're talking about? Well, the trade certainly, uh, the, the trade fight over softwood lumber sh- certainly makes it more difficult for us uh, to be able to uh, compete because we're paying 
uh, currently about 20.23% on average duties on everything that we ship to one of our key markets, the United States. Mm-hmm. But what we've got, you know, we've got very efficient mills here in the province of British Columbia, some of the best in the world. We've got gr- a great workforce, a highly skilled workforce. Right now, the real challenge for us is that our fiber costs have gone up exponentially. And there are a number of factors that lead to that, including, you know, pressures on the land base. We've had fires, we've had beetles. Uh, but fundamentally, the cost of fiber has increased uh, quite significantly to the place where uh, we're now a high-cost jurisdiction. And you may say, well, you know, why does that matter? Well, it matters because if you are a high-cost jur- jurisdiction, you're the first one that goes down when prices drop and you stay down longer. And that's something that BC is really not used to because we've generally been, you know, a, a very low-cost producer, which meant we've been able to uh, sub- to be able to withstand some of the market volatility. That's why it's so critically important that we address this issue. And, and we've got ideas about that. And, and I, we've, we're working with government to address some of those. And we've got to get this collective challenge met so that we can be able to participate in the economic recovery that we all uh, know will come in, in the months and the and uh, weeks and months and years ahead. So, Susan, how did we go? What was the process by which we've gone from being a low-cost producer to a high-cost producer? How long did it take, and what was the big difference maker? Well, you know, a lot of things contribute to your cost of fiber, but it's, you know, it's it, there's a supply and demand issue, and, of course, we've got, uh, we've had uh, a re- uh, our fiber base with uh, some of the, uh, beetles and the fires, mm-hmm. our, our fiber base has actually declined sure. over a number of times. So you've got more people chasing that fiber, which drives up the price. We've also got, you know, we've got a complex regulatory environment here. We've got uh, other people wanting to use uh, forest lands for other things. So there's pressure on the land base. And generally, we just have a, a higher cost operating environment here. So we're tr- we've got to address that, and we, we have some ideas to be able to do that. And I think what we've got to do is just get to that so that we can get back to the place where, where BC can be uh, competing with all of the globe. Because, you know, we're, we, aren't, we aren't competing with our neighbors down the road. We are competing. This is a global business. Oh, sure. And we face competition from folks uh, in, in the United States, in Sweden, and in Russia, and all over the globe. So, you know, we want to work hard to be able to continue to be an economic engine in this province, uh, providing, you know, workers uh, with, you know, good-paying jobs. These are very uh, well-paid jobs, and they support, you know, uh, over 140 communities around our province. Uh, uh, Susan, the Canadian dollar is taking a bit of a pounding these days, and I would suppose to an export-oriented industry like forestry in British Columbia, that's not an altogether bad thing. Well, that helps, but, you know, we've got to make sure we don't rely on just foreign exchange to be able to be competitive. Of course. Um, We've got to get some of the fundamentals addressed. And, you know, as we look out, we just see this, um, you know, this perfect opportunity for our sector. We've seen even in this, uh, in this very difficult time that fi- products made from fiber are, are valued. They're valued all over the globe for their green building potential, for the long fiber that goes into per- personal protective equipment. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, you know, we want to build a more, we want to build more value added products here and uh, cross laminated timber. We can do all that, but we, you know, if, if our pulp mills aren't running, they're not creating uh, lumber, 
we can't make high value products and uh, we can't provide chips for pulp mills to make, you know, specialty papers and other products. So we've got to find a way to get back to a, 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 a footing where we can be competitive with the globe. And then I think, you know, the there's, there's huge opportunities for this sector as the world looks for carbon friendly building materials, building materials and products made from, fiber that come from a renewable forest that is continued to be replanted. So, you know, it's a challenge that we've got. We've got a big challenge in our sector, but this is still going to be an economic uh, engine of our economy here in British Columbia for decades to come. We've got to get through these challenges, though. Interesting. Final question to you, Susan, and we're grateful for your time this morning. One of the big things that the forest industry has been doing in British Columbia since I arrived in the 70s is attempting at all times, I'm told, to diversify markets. You talked about the scrap that's ongoing between Canada and the United States over softwood lumber. Not a help at all. How is the diversification of our client base going, though? Well, we've actually made great strides in that. And, and frankly, British Columbia has been a leader. We've worked with uh, the provincial government through, through forest innovation and investment uh, with industry and the federal government through Natural Resources Canada to really uh, push to open up our markets. Mm-hmm. We started that in, in the early 2000s. You know, you, we used to rely on the U.S. for probably 85% of yep. our product went there. Now now it's closer to about 50. Our second largest market is China. We send about 25% there and about 10% uh, to Japan. We also have opened up markets in Korea and other Asian countries like uh, we're working on Malaysia and Vietnam and, and um, the Philippines as they start to uh, do more production or manufacturing. Uh, with those facilities setting in from Chinese operations, setting up operations there um, to make uh, wood and manufactured wood products. Um, and we've also started to dip our toe in the market in India, obviously with different logistics for us from, from the Asian markets. But we've done a lot to diversify. It's been a successful partnership between government and industry. There's certainly more we can do as the globe looks for more carbon-friendly products. Mm-hmm. But that's, that is uh, a place where we see opportunity. Well, fingers crossed for continued success, Susan Yurkovich. Thanks so much for doing this with us this morning. It's great to get the update uh, from the person who knows it best. <laughs> Thanks very much. Susan Yurkovich is president and CEO of the British Columbia Council of Forest Industries. In a petition to decriminalize the use of psychedelic plants and fungi in Canada will be presented in the House of Commons by Nanaimo Ladysmith Green Party MP Paul Manley. The e-petition, initiated by our next guest, Trevor Miller, opened for signatures a couple of weeks ago on April 16th. Within 12 hours, it had surpassed the 500 signature threshold required for Manley to present it in the House. The goal, however, according to our guest, is much loftier than that, as we welcome Trevor Miller to the program. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You are a member of the Canadian Psychedelic Association. I have to tell you, Trevor, I did not know such a thing existed until I saw this article a couple of days ago. Tell us about that before we get into anything else. I wouldn't... That wouldn't surprise me at all. It's a newly formed nonprofit, and it was formed by a bunch of professionals within Vancouver. And it was uh, December 31st of 2019 was the day it was actually incorporated. And a lot of us have been working within the field of therapeutic psychedelics for quite some time. 
Uh, my business in the past was working with a plant medicine called Ibogaine, which comes from a plant in Africa called Iboga, which is very effective at helping people overcome opioid use disorder. Hmm. And uh, I had a business that was providing that from about 2013 till 2017 when I legally could do that. But then Health Canada rescheduled that medicine and put it on the prescription drug list. So it hasn't been available for me to work with it. And it's incredibly effective. Like we show anywhere from a 40 to 60% success rate helping people get off opiates with that without the painful withdrawal symptoms. And then I was through my work there invited to be chairman of the board for MAPS Canada. And MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. So they're really doing all they can to lead the charge as far as legitimizing these, these psychedelic medicines as therapies. Again, MAPS in the USA has an FDA-approved phase three clinical trial using MDMA, the active ingredient in the street drug ecstasy, to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And you're only given breakthrough therapy status if the therapy is showing to be very effective. So it's really exciting work, and we just want to make these... This petition in particular is just directed towards plants specifically. Um, we think there's a pretty sound argument that if it grows out of the ground, it maybe shouldn't be illegal. Nature has kind of legitimized it enough by the fact that it just pops up out of the ground on its own. So we just want to aim for this low-hanging fruit of decriminalizing plant medicines. Uh-huh. And, yeah, we're, we're getting great response. It's it's pretty cool to see. Well, I saw psychedelics in the headline, and, of course, I'm say, thinking, you know, acid and all of that stuff from the 60s and 70s. But that was all synthetic and chemical, and you're talking about the almost the exact opposite. You're talking about plants that and, and fungus uh, uh, derivatives that grow in the forests and literally all over the country. So up until you said 2017, Trevor, many of these items were quite legal. What caused them in Health Canada to reverse their status and put them into the illegal category? So 2017 was specifically the plant medicine that I'd been working with professionally, which was Ibogaine. And really, it was almost, I think it was a good move. Ibogaine had been listed as a natural health product within Canada. And it is that that medicine in particular is particularly is potentially dangerous. So putting it on the prescription drug list was a good move. But a lot of these other substances were just kind of made illegal in the 1970s, the early 70s, when kind of anything with that psychedelic tone to it was was made illegal. There was kind of a knee-jerk reaction from government administrations at the time, really related to the anti-war movement, which uh, it seemed that these psychedelics were kind of fueling <laughs> a feeling of peace and unity, and people didn't necessarily want to go off and fight in the Vietnam War. So that wasn't great for business at the time for some of these government administrations. So they just kind of did blanket kind of criminalization across the board for a lot of these substances that really have been used culturally for centuries in a really pro-social way. Like if if you're using these medicines right, it really, it makes you kind of heal society rather than create division within it. And that's, that's our goal. And it's just making them available for the 
the kind of traditional ways that they've been used for centuries. Well, we know that in British Columbia, for example, uh, magic mushrooms or psilocybin are fairly, uh, fairly routinely, predictably available. Uh, are those just hallucinogenic party drugs, or is there a clinical application to to that particular product? Awesome question. Yeah, psilocybin. I would say it's very. Um, it's very flexible. It, it does go well. As, as I know, many British Columbians know, it goes well with a few beers around a campfire. They also go really well in a therapeutic setting. So that means taking a dose of the mushrooms themselves or psilocybin, which is the active ingredient right. within the mushrooms. And then you put on a blindfold. You put on headphones. You go deep into yourself to look at whatever might ail you. So there's a, a phase three, again, a FDA-approved clinical trial underway right now for using psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it work really well for anxiety. So especially in the face of COVID right now, so many people are facing depression. So many are, people are facing, you know, higher degrees of anxiety than ever. Mm -hmm. And if you do this in a therapeutic setting, it's, it's not necessarily all fun and games. Sometimes, you know, you're, uh, you're unearthing these, these traumas that have been holding you back. So you face them within the moment. But then I always say that using these medicines properly, it's almost like we're seeing life through a pane of glass. And as, it's like a filter. And as life happens, our heart gets broken, we suffer traumas, that pane of glass gets dirty. And I always say that it's not like these medicines really add anything to you. It's just like cleaning that glass from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And once it's clean, you're like, oh, actually, I feel pretty good. Life's kind of awesome. I've got the tools within me to handle my life situations now. So it really opens people up to... I, I think the power that's ultimately inside each and every one of us to there, live a happier life. Trevor, is there a lot of support for the legalization of these, this limited list of natural products in the uh, psychiatric and psychological communities in Canada? For sure. Like the conversation is changing so quickly. I know the BC Centre for Substance Use here in the province is, is seeking to do psilocybin uh, clinical trials. Uh, there, there is uh, FD, the Health Canada approved clinical trial for using MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. That's underway. It's, um, yeah, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hot topic right now. I would say in in psychology, in psychiatry, people are acknowledging that the toolkit that they've got right now, it's not really working for people. The the antidepressants, they aren't working as well as they were. Mm -hmm. And and did they ever work all that well? That's more like putting a band-aid over a wound rather than actually healing it. Whereas these medicines seem to be really getting in there and helping people make dramatic shifts within their own psychology to live happier lives. Trevor, does the fact that we have legalized cannabis now for over a year uh, and, and no national trauma has occurred, we haven't you know slipped off the edge and, and <laughs> And fallen into mm -hmm. hell or whatever the dire predictions were prior to all of that does the fact that we've we've legalized one substance and and sort of rolled with the punch make the next step any easier for you or is it just a whole other new ball game 
I think it really does make things easier, especially when cannabis stores are being labeled essential services yeah, yeah. throughout this pandemic. It's unbelievable. Well, and alcohol sales along um, with cannabis sales are way up. There's no question. I know. I know. So I think I think for sure it's, it's really changed the tune. I, I think people need to remember as well that it, it, the government became interested in legalizing cannabis when 51% of Canadians polled said that they thought that was a good idea. It really came from the will of the people. So that's what we'd really like to show with this petition towards plant medicines in general is all it took was 500 signatures to get this read in the House of Commons. We did that within the first 12 hours. Uh, I'm aiming for... 500,000 signatures is just the pie in the sky goal that I'm after right now because that's the most signatures that they get on all petitions combined in any year. And that, I, that would I be significant. Gover- got, got to cut it short, Trevor. But first, I need the address where people can go to sign the petition or have a look at yes, least. Yes, please. Awesome. Thank you. The quick link is decriminalizednature.ca slash petition decriminalize nature.ca trevor miller from the canadian psychedelic association interesting chat this morning thanks for getting up early and joining us trevor good to talk to you my pleasure sterling take care you too hi it's shauna and i might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables hey it's ryan and i might be a bad parent because i went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth johnny here i might be a bad parent because in my house the tooth fairy gives pocket change but we're not alone len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital and andy left his two-year-old at the rink all right guys i'm sure we're not alone like andy's kid For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.